Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. I gotta tell you something, people. The gentleman on my show today, I talked to him last week, and he said, I hope baseball is back, and I think it was a good omen. I know he's a big baseball fan. I know he's an avid golfer, because I've seen him with pictures with Joel Murray, who's another avid golfer, and to boot, he's one hell of an actor, and my guest is Mr. Bill Smitrovich. How you doing, Bill? Hello. So you okay? I was going to bring that up. You're a Mets fan. I'm, I'm a Philly. I'm a Phillies fan. It's okay. Can I come out? It's is a, it okay? It's all right. It's it's funny. You know, this is no lie. When the Mets played the Royals in the World Series a few years back, oh yeah, I posted on Facebook. I said, you know what? I like New York. I have no problem if they win. And all my Phillies fans were sitting there sending me messages going, "LA's got into your head." You're an asshole, this and that. I'm like, come on, guys. I'm like, who wants Kansas City to win? I mean, the Mets, you know, they've they've had a good franchise, just like the Phillies, but we've had hard times. Both of us have had heartbreaking moments. Yeah, it's an East Coast mentality, basically, you know. But there's there are dividing lines between Philly, <laughs> Philly and the Mets, you know. But the, uh, you mentioned the Orioles. You know, Davey Johnson is so connected with that series, and then he becomes the manager of the 86 championship Mets. And it's there are so many kind of weird connections that made 86 and that whole team happen. And uh, I, I, I have the honor and privilege of uh, having season tickets there as a young actor. I was making little money making commercials. So the four of us split, uh, split a... Uh, more than four of us. There were like eight of us who split a four box seat, a uh, four seat box. I mean, and uh, it looked right down the right field line. And we got this seat after we had sat through a hundred loss season, uh, a ninety six loss season, <laughs> and they moved us closer uh, with our tickets and. And as they did that, we got Strawberry and Gooden and, you know, Gary Carter, Keith Hernandez, and everything started to click, you know. But uh, it was, there were memorable years, memorable years. Now, now you're, you're from Connecticut, so why the Mets and not the Yankees? Well, it's an interesting thing. I was, <laughs> maybe it's not interesting, but <laughs> my, my cousin and I had a, had a rivalry in my head anyway. And he was, uh, he was a baseball fan and a good pitcher. And he liked the Yankees. He was also like a year, maybe two older than me. And, uh, I, you know, I grew partial to the Tigers in those years. And Al Kaline became my favorite player. Because when my dad took me to Yankee Stadium, it all goes back to that first time you see the green grass as you come in as a kid. Everybody who's a baseball fan remembers the first time at a baseball uh, stadium, major league. I mean, and um, to enter Yankee Stadium, too, it was like a shrine. You know, we were going to see, my dad wanted to see Mickey Mantle, you know. And so we got there in uh, LK line. Well, they, they were they were hitting uh, outfield fungos. This guy, um, 
Mm. His name escapes, but he was an older uh, Tiger coach. He was hitting fungos out to the outfields uh, for practice. And he had a bucket of balls, and he turns around, or he looks out to the field, and he goes, no, no, no more balls. I don't have any more, you know. And uh, so they come trotting in, and I was just staring at this ball in his back pocket for whole, the whole time. I'm going, what's he going to do with that ball? What's he going to do with that ball? <laughs> and he, sure enough, he grabs, his, grabs the ball out of his pocket, and he turns around, and he goes, hey, this is for you. And and ever since you know that was I rooted for the Tigers and K line was the hero of that 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 particular game and he went on to be the hero against the Yankees a lot of times and they were the only team that could beat the Yankees at that time so I became a big Tiger fan and when I was in college they won the World Series in that epic seven game Danny McLean Mickey Lolich. Uh, beat Bob Gibson twice, and you know it was that was some series. That was '68, uh, I think, right? So, so you're you're a big baseball fan. I have to ask you because you're a Mets guy, and I'm not sure how I feel on it yet. But what do you think that now they're doing the designated hitter in the National League? Do you like that, or do you, do you like it the old way? Because I'm not sure what I like, because I know the Phillies The Phillies have a really bad bullpen, so they would always pull their pitchers out and get to the bullpen. But I'm not sure. What's what's your take on it? Because you're, you're, you've been a longtime fan. Yeah, well, uh, frankly, bottom of my heart is I'm not going to lose any sleep over. <laughs> it was going to happen one way or the other, and you're going to lose Zach Wheeler. He's a good hitter. <clears throat> <clears throat> Jack Wheeler, I was so I was so upset when they not so upset, but I was upset when they traded him and I thought uh, you know, I still think he's a marvelous pitcher, but I hope uh, he can stay healthy like uh, like I hope DeGrom can stay healthy this year, but um, you know, I mean, speaking of hitters we uh, on the Mets, I mean, DeGrom's a great hitter. Syndergaard was a great hitter. Now it doesn't matter, but so it's there are so many that are horrible. You know, you you look back at people, pitchers that have never had a hit, then they got to work it out, and then blah, blah, blah. And uh, it was coming, you know, as soon as they they thought of it, they went, oh, this is, let's try it in one league, and then before you know it, people's careers are being extended, and uh, more balls are leaving the yard, so... I mean, the Mets are in good shape for that. Uh, and I think uh, they've got uh, they've got some pop on the bench and makes it more a little more exciting. Now, you mentioned that you were getting commercials so you could afford season tickets. So <laughs> what what got you into acting? You're, you're, a, you're a kid from Bridgeport, Connecticut. Were, were you drawn to TV when you were young? I mean, what started this career? Because you've had a great career. Well, thank you. Yeah, been pretty lucky. Uh, but it all, uh, yeah, uh, it all kind of, I can't, it all started in college. Uh, somebody told me about a, a play uh, in the theater department, and I had done a couple of little 
things for, for friends and wanted me to get involved. And I kind of liked it, you know, and uh, they liked me. And I'm a kid that lost my dad when I was 17. And, I, you know, I worked my way through college, but I didn't go to college until I was 20. So uh, for me, uh, it was it was it was a great thing of, of being a part of something. Right. And uh, my in those years, my my uh, minor was was becoming secondary education and uh, special education. So um, I was uh, tutoring as a special ed uh, minor. They offered you a work study program where you would uh, go to Warner's Bras and Girdles. Warner Bra and Girdles were like, should I say the tits? Can I say that? They were the tits in terms of women's foundation garments back in the day. (laughs) So uh, they had a heat sealing package set up where people with, uh, they called them disabilities or other abilities or whatever they want want to call them, but they were challenged. And uh, there were a couple of us that oversaw this uh, group of people and we we had a good time. We had fun with them and they became, uh, you know, very real for me. You know, I was always had a soft spot in my heart for the bus that used to stop out in front of my mother's apartment house. And it was filled with kids with uh, special needs or Down syndrome, whatever it may be. So make a long story short, I go to the theater and I thought they were looking for somebody to play Lenny Bruce. They told me, go down and read for Lenny. Well, I went down and they handed me a mice and men. And I never read of Mice and Men. I wasn't a big reader. My my life was disrupted when I was 17 and I uh, never read it. So I sat down and I read it. And the first time I'd ever read, uh, wept at a piece of literature in my life. And I was incredibly moved uh, by the story and the character. And uh, I, I had an epiphany. I, uh, at that point, I had about that character just just blew up in my head. And I went in and they had a guest director there. God bless his soul, a man named Al Pia, taught at Stanford uh, High School in Stanford, Connecticut, and his wife Betty. And they, in turn, introduced me to Morris Karnofsky, who became one of my mentors, uh, and his wife, Phoebe Brand. And uh, and we went on to do a Mice and Men. I went in for the audition, which is interesting story. But uh, I go in and I read, and they they give me the role, and it was a tremendous success. And uh, um, it was it was just great. It was wonderful. The, the cast was perfect. It seemed like everyone was just so fit for the, their role in the theater department. Uh, it was just a kind of a magical moment. I mean, Al taught 
me so much about how to read a script, how to break it down, how to look at the character um, and uh, discover it. And you know, he appreciated my, my talents, you know, and I, I didn't know what they were. They were all just God-given stuff at this point. And I was as raw as could be. And uh, uh, it was a gift. It was a real, it was a real gift <laughs> um, in many ways. So you, so you do that play. So now you, you have, you have this feeling, you know, it's, it's like anything, it's contagious. You know, you sit there and you know, you know, like, oh, and I talked to so many actors that say that it's, it's just bliss. like, it's it's, bliss. <laughs> yeah. so, so now where do you go from there? How do you sit there and figure out, cause you're still young and it's your first big part. How do you figure out what you're going to do and what's your passage? Well, I didn't know uh, what I was going to do. Uh, but I had the, uh, the help and the, I don't know, the, 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 the history of Morris Karnofsky was looking at. And I was looking at him and I'm going, God, he's an old man. And he gave me incredible inspiration. He's a marvelous actor. I've seen him do King, King Lear which was called uh, the greatest King Lear of the century by the New York Times back in the day. And, uh, and uh, you know, maybe I could do this. You know, he gave me that idea that, and he was so light and wonderful about it. And his wife was great. And they had such history with the group theater and uh, the method and natural acting and, and then my good friend, Bill Walton at the time, not the basketball player, but, uh, and, uh, another member of our fraternity, uh, were in the, uh, theater department and, uh, also were great, greatly supportive. And Bill, uh, who was, uh, a little older than me, ex-Marine, he gets into uh, Smith College in Northampton, Massachusetts in the graduate program. And it was the first year that Smith was co-ed anything. But they had to be co-ed in the theater department. They needed men for the roles. They couldn't always rely on Amherst and Hampshire and all the other colleges around there. So... Uh, he went there and then uh, he went there for one year and they gave him a, you know, let him in and everything, auditioned and his, I don't know, maybe his grades were good, I don't know. But uh, he said, Bill, you ought to come uh, audition. And I said, man, I don't have the grades for Smith College. I barely got out of UB, you know. So he goes, no, you come down. You mean, you mean to get in if I just audition? And uh, he said, you got nothing to lose, so. I went down and auditioned, did Lenny and a Mice and Men, did a, a little Shakespeare monologue from Henry V, the monologue that starts the play over from Music File. Um, but anyway, did that and uh, got a stipend of $2,000 a year and a full ride. And it was 1976. So that was two years of more bliss 
and meeting an incredible amount of knowledgeable, nurturing, oh man, theatrical and otherwise people uh, in and outside of the university. I met Maya Angelou uh, there, named my daughter after her uh, uh, because of just her presence at the time was so powerful. Uh, and, uh, you know, Elizabeth Hardwick and Leonard Berkman, who's an incredible dramaturge. And I learned a lot about theater and um, started a theater company there with uh, some friends of mine uh, who invited me into their theater company, be it known. Uh, and we started doing plays in Northampton uh, in Massachusetts. And one of the plays we did was our version of The Elephant Man from a pulp novel, not Bernard Pomerantz's play, but Roy Fodry and Sheena C's idea of what this story was out of the pulp novel. So the five of us, six of us created a theater company called the No Theater Company, not related to Japanese, spelled N-O, and uh, we didn't have a theater. So we performed a lot of different places in Northampton uh, after I graduated there, uh, I taught part-time at UMass, uh, Amherst, uh, non-theater majors. That was a little side gig. And uh, we performed this play, and it was magic. It was just great. We, it, you know, people just flipped, and I flipped over. I thought it was just ingenious the way we moved, we, we moved and the way we did the play in this space, which looked like a railroad car. And uh, at the end of it was a stage with footlights on it. But it was in the basement of an old movie theater on Pleasant Street in Northampton, Massachusetts. That was probably the first <laughs> uh, movie theater in that area, in the whole Pioneer Valley. So the guy gave it to us with the condition that we cleaned it up. So it was all full of all kinds of shit, you know, chairs, all kinds of bad chair things. So we kind of pull the stuff out there and we find what we find are like two bench seats, about 12 of them in a row, and a projector's booth in the back, and the stage in front. And what we came to realize was that this was for the the blue movies. This was downstairs. You know? That's what it was. It had a dirt floor. And it was uh, you know, it sat about twenty-four people, maybe, I don't know. Uh and uh it was very deep. I mean, we had we used mirrors and Characters came in and out, and all the characters were the Elephant Man at one point, uh, as you know, a strong metaphor there. And we had uh, it was just you know, it was great. We all played different characters, and and then um, Roy and Sheena got involved with the uh, Worcester Group, which uh, I knew back in the day as the uh, Performance Garage which members included Spalding Gray and still include Willem Dafoe and uh, their 
uh, creator, Richard Schechner. Uh, and um, it was uh, epic. It was epic. We got to do it down downtown in, uh, in Soho on Worcester Street. And um, I think about a total of 75 people came all summer. Uh, but, uh, it was that, that moment I said, uh, okay, this is it, man. I'll give it 10 years. I'll stay here for 10 years. Give it a shot. Nothing happens. I'm going back to Northampton. Then I don't know. I'll do something back there. Now, when you, when you said you were giving it 10 years, were you thinking you were going to do theater the whole time? Or did you say, I'm going to get into TV? I mean, because... I know people. No, theater, who... no, I wanted to do theater. No, it's that was my that was my goal. My first uh, uh, my first credit was with Arthur Miller, and that was another incredible uh, blessing and timing and uh, so many things. So, uh, and then I got my SAG card, but I came there with uh, the total intention of doing that. I produced. Uh, uh, a new play that a friend of mine brought to me uh, when I had a little money from the commercials. And uh, it was a great story. It's about a baseball player. It's called Never Say Die. And uh, it was written by a guy from Appleton, Wisconsin, kind of famous place and uh, for baseball. And uh, he wrote it about this Appleton A's, the double A team and this guy who was an ex major leaguer and was kind of stuck managing and had this ex wife, parentheses, who is now my wife for 38 years. Moving on. His name is Shaw Purnell. And uh, that's where we met. And the uh, we did the play there. People came to see it. Uh, Schechner came to see it. It was. It was incredible. It was a two-story walk-up theater on uh, on Fourteenth uh, Street between Third and Lex, and um, it was it was refreshing. It was great. It was just just a bunch of actors getting together and doing a play in a hot theater, meeting in the summer, no freaking air conditioning, and putting it on and getting people to come and getting reviewed. And um, so there was that. And then I was taking classes um, with Jack Garfine, who was uh, producing Arthur Miller play and Dan Sullivan, the renowned uh, director who I've worked with a few times now, and, um, but great director. Uh, we're doing uh, the American Clock, which is uh, one of Arthur's last plays, and uh, it wasn't a big hit here. We were a big hit when it opened in Spoleto Festival, uh, but uh, Frank Rich gave us a wonderful review. Who was the top reviewer at the time, and uh, then a different director took over, and we did 13 shows on Broadway, and it was over, and. Um, but England loved it. It was about the Depression and vis-a-vis uh, -vis Arthur's family during the Depression and uh, how it affected the dynamic of, 
of their family and what success meant. What success meant at that point was, geez, do I stay with the family and and uh, help them, or do I go off and become, you know, go off and do my thing? Uh, one one did and one did one stayed. His name was Victor, and uh, he became a cop and uh, supported them, and uh, the other became a doctor and went off and became his own man, so to speak. So you're doing this theater, and you, you know, you've had Broadway, and you're getting things. How do you end up in TV? And I always wonder, because so many actors, you know, it's funny, when you talk to people who did theater, first of all, they say, like, the first time they, they end up on TV, they're like, what the hell, you know, with your marks and the camera, and they're like, what, what am I supposed to do? Like, yeah. Wait, where do, what do you mean, look over here? I'm used to a crowd. How did you, <laughs> how did you parlay into TV? Because you love theater. Did you just sit there and say what a lot of people say? Well, you know what? I can do theater, but I need to make money, so I'll do TV. That is the, <laughs> that, that is the determining factor at a certain point, especially when you have a family and, or, or you, uh, you buy completely in and you go with the theater company somewhere and you do rep for a while and hone your craft. But if you're, you know, if you're brought into it, if somebody comes to you and uh, kind of takes you into that, uh, it's not a bad way to start, A. And uh, as far as me, I, I just, uh, television, I, le I learned something big uh, when, uh, I don't know if I read for this role, I think it was just offered this role, it was called, uh, there was a movie of the week called Muggable Mary. And uh, I think Karen Valentine or somebody, I don't know who it was. Um, but I was playing a fire chief. And we're in the toy building in uh, downtown Manhattan. I don't know, a lot of people you might know, it's cavernous, it's huge, a beautiful building right near the Flatiron building uh, downtown. And, and as you, I was holding the clipboard and the scene was somebody had screwed up and I'm playing the fireman and I'm holding this clipboard and just out of theater instincts, right? I, and we're rolling. I take the clipboard and I throw it down on the ground, on the floor of this huge hall opening ballroom kind of entrance to the toy. And it lands on that that marble floor and sounds like a gunshot. I mean, wow, bang. And I could see the sound man straight ahead of me. He took his earphones and he went like this, boom. And he threw, threw them off. He threw them off his head onto the floor. <laughs> he went like this. He was fine, but man, he was okay. But it was it was such a funny sight, and I learned so much about. Uh, oh, right then and there, you know, Bill, come on, you got a, you got a microphone on you. <laughs> You're forgetting that there's booms and everything here. I didn't know anything about that. So, uh, but 
TV came to me uh, um, through Michael Mann. Um, I, uh, Bonnie Timmerman had seen me in some uh, theater in New York, and um, she called me in, uh, and I read for this. It was a good. It was. I was doing. I was doing a play at Longworth Theater at the time, really good play. But well, it was actually it was uh, Rod Serling's uh, Requiem for a Heavyweight with uh, John Lithgow and Richard Dreyfuss and David Brobel. We were having a pretty good time, and uh, they sent it to me, and it said. Um, uh, Gold Coast, written by uh, Nick Yerkovich. So I read it, and it's one of the best movies of the week I think I'd ever read in my life. It just moved, really moved, and it was beautiful. I mean, uh, the descriptions and then this character of Scotty Wheeler, man, it was interesting. You know, he was Crockett's ex-partner, so it turns out to be Miami Vice. And... Uh, I went in to read for Miami Vice. Uh, they offered this to me, and I went down and shot the pilot for Miami Vice. And uh, that became um, a big deal. And people rec started recognizing me on the street. What is that like? What, what was that like? Because, you know, I always wonder, you know, you go from... You know, people may see you, oh, that's the guy who was in the theater, but then all of a sudden they're like, they're like, holy crap, that's that's the dude from uh, was on my movies. How was it? What was that like for you? Well, it was strange. I'll tell you. I was, uh, as I said, I was doing my me by. I mean, uh, uh, life goes on back in my college days, and uh, <clears throat> in the interim, after I'd done the the pilot, which was a great experience. Uh, <clears throat> Michael Carter uh, directed it. The uh, young director, Michael Mann, was given a lot of people their first chance there in that pilot. You know, hats off to him and, uh, you know, uh, young writers, young director, uh, you know, Don Johnson, whatever. So uh, after that was over, I had done a play in Louisville at the Humana Festival. Uh, called Food from Trash. And I was playing a, uh, a garbage man named Sudden Pissanger. First name is Sudden. His last name was Pissanger. And it was great. We had a great time. And uh, the artistic director said to me after it was over, he says, do you have any plays that you would like to do? What would you like to do? And and we talked. I said, "Well, I like Chekhov, and uh, but you know, I got You know, I'd really like to do Lenny again. And uh, now that I'm, you know, ten years past that moment, and uh, we had a couple of drinks and talked about it. Well, about two weeks later, I got a call from his office, and uh, he said, "John would like you to do it, Mice and Men." And I was floating. Then she says, he'd like you to do it in Hong Kong at the Hong Kong International 
arts festival. Now I'm really flying. And it was, it was just a, a wonderful, incredible moment in my life, in my creative life, uh, the whole nine yards. It was, um, we went there and did a wonderful production of Mice and Men and stayed there for a while. And I knew friends remarkably in Japan, got to travel in Japan for a long time and, and, uh, Hong Kong and Kowloon. And, you know, I came back to New York. I was, I was feeling good. You know, I was 30, I don't know, 35, 36 years old or whatever. And, uh, flew back into JFK. I get in the car in the taxi. We drive to my apartment and, uh, guy stop, he stops the car. He turns around and he goes, you're that guy on Miami Vice, aren't you? <laughs> so, I mean, that was a, that was a great, uh, that was an incredible welcome back to New York City. And uh, I, maybe I was so startled by that because that was the time I, I bought a, a Japanese woodblock print uh, done by three different generations of woodblock artists. When I was in Japan, this is 1977 or something like that. No, I don't know, something 80s. And uh, I left it in the cab and went up to my apartment and didn't realize it for a while. And I freaked. I'm, you know, I went, oh my God, it's gone, it's gone. I call the cab company, thank God, the guy was there in 10 minutes <laughs> to get me back that, that trip. And, you know, God bless, you know, sometimes it's just sometimes it, the bird is shitting on you and sometimes they're flying over you, you know? You know, it's funny, you know, you mentioned Miami Vice and how he recognized you. And and I, I, I'm a huge Miami Vice fan. I love watching that show. And a lot of my guests have been on that show. So I always watch it. Yeah. I'm like, oh, my God, they're so much younger. Like Evan Handler had hair. I mean, so there's mm. like stuff like that. But now ap after Miami Vice, because of Miami Vice, is that how you got Crime Story? Did you have to audition for that? Or did they did they give you that part? No, Michael, uh, uh, we were doing <clears> – Michael uh, – offered me uh, Manhunter. And uh, in Manhunter, um, there was Bill Peterson. There were a lot of interesting people in, in that as well. Uh, uh, and Stephen Lang and, and Joan and a guy named Dennis Farina. So Dennis, Peter, Dennis, Bill, and myself are working on a scene uh, over, I'm, a, I'm an FBI forensics guy, and and I kind of helped bust this case open with some teeth marks on a piece of toilet paper. Go figure. It was a great book, Red Dragon. It, it was great. I think this is the scariest uh, Dollar Hyde and uh, what's his name? Scarier than the other movie with Hopkins. But anyway... 
I mean, Brian Cox, he was scary. Anyway, uh, so I don't know, we're doing Sam, setting up the camera or something, and I'm standing with the crew, and I'm standing next to Michael Manny, and you, you know, how would you like to do a television series? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I, I guess I would. Yeah. Thinking about it. And that's how he just gave me the roll of cry check and wrote it with me in mind. And Chuck Adamson knew my work, who helped write that as well. And, and uh, I became uh, a part of that. Uh, community for a while it was it was an honor I mean you know to be to work with uh, these guys um, very much I don't know some Bridgeport some Chicago I mean I think that's part of what Michael Mann uh, when he met me uh, maybe saw in me I told him stories about uh you know, working through college and the jobs I had. And, and, uh, I think it sounded very much like, like what he knew the world to be as well. And I was talking about corrupt police chiefs and lieutenants coming in and out of lunch and, you know, busting the FBI. I did that in Bridgeport. <laughs> so it was, uh, it was an interesting meeting of uh, creative and life experience and uh, his respect and my respect for him. And But I didn't know that much about him, frankly. I mean, I knew he was a film director and a very good film director and uh, did a movie called Heat, which, which I didn't know too much about. I was really, uh, I was steeped in the theater thing. I was doing a lot of um, work in uh, Louisville and Pennsylvania. And at the, um, hey, I want to give a shout out to the People's Light and Theater Company in Melbourne, Pennsylvania. Uh, did many fine productions there many years ago, my wife and I. And now, remarkably so, the artistic director is the son of the man I talked about, who was the dramaturge at Smith College, Dr. Leonard Berkman. Wow. He is, is it, you know, how about that for synchronicity? You know, it, it's funny, you, you, you talked about, you know, working with Michael Mann and just getting in with that group. And now the, the characters you were playing were, you know, harder edge, you know, like, you, you know, as you said, streetwise. And then it's always just crazy because then all of a sudden, you know, life goes on comes about. So, I mean, I always wonder because you, you're a trained actor, but you sometimes people get a certain persona of, oh, you can play a tough guy, an edgy guy. How did life goes on come about? Because it, it's a different character. You're playing a dad. And it's just amazing that you said that when you were younger, you always had a special affinity towards the special and bus coming. And then years later, you're on a show that is groundbreaking. I mean, it, no one really had a character as somewhat of a star. How did it all come about and what is what is that what is that show meant to you? 
Well, as I always say, it's the most gratifying job I've ever had. And uh, working for those four years to elevate the consciousness of people and how they relate to people with challenges, um, you know, if you want to call it woke, you can call it woke. But people woke up to the fact that there are other people that around them that don't have all the advantages that we all might have. So apart from that, I'll get off my soapbox. Uh, but it's a, um, by this time I was married and I had a two year old or a boy at the time. <clears throat> and uh, I went back from crime story and went back right into the theater. And uh, I was doing a play with Caroline, a marvelous actress. She's now on, um, on uh, the comedy set in the back, way back uh, in the 20s or 30s. Uh, never mind. I'll think of it. But Caroline Aaron and I, we started doing Frankie and Johnny in the Claire de Lune off Broadway. And uh, I was thrilled. And we were having a great time. And uh, and packed houses, standing O's. I would drive back to uh, Connecticut. And, you know, I was living the dream. I'm living in Connecticut. I had a, a, a show in New York. And I mean, a child, house, hmm, man, you know, life is good. And um, my agent sent me this uh, script. It was called Glenbrook. So uh, I was a pilot, and uh, it was the sweetest damn script I had ever read in my life. And uh, I loved it. I loved it. I wanted to do it. I wanted to be that guy. I wanted, I wanted to celebrate my dad. I wanted to celebrate his legacy as the kind of dad that I thought he would be. And it gave me an opportunity to memorialize him in a way that some in some way for me anyway. It was unspoken, but <clears throat> but it, it had incredible potential. And uh, my favorite episode, one of my favorites, is the Special Olympics episode where uh, Jerry Jameson, who's a renowned television director, uh, decided to change his idea about filming this episode entirely on the run, which you don't do very often when you're doing television. He said, we're going to go handheld. I'm just going to find a lot of moments between you and the kids because I, I can see that's where the show is. Right? Great episode. Um, and so reading this script, you know, uh, I was doing the play at the time and, you know, my, I was, I was cooking, you know, I had a lot of good things going on, feeling solid and 
went in, knew all the lines and read for it. And uh, they said, oh, we'd like to do, like to have you do a callback uh, with uh, an actress that we're thinking about for Libby. Well, it was Patty Paul. And they said, well, we've, they've rented, because it was pilot season, I couldn't go out there. She couldn't go out there. She was doing a play called Anything Goes at Lincoln Center. And uh, so both of us couldn't go. Uh, so they came to us, auditioned us in a, uh, a soap opera stage, uh, kind of moved some things around. We created a little black box set. And uh, she and I did a couple of scenes together. And then she left. And then I did a scene with uh, the director pretending to be Corky. <laughs> so he knew I wasn't afraid to touch his beard because I, I reached out and touched his beard. <laughs> but uh, they, uh, they loved the chemistry we had. We had, we had good chemistry uh, on, on camera chemistry. Uh, I don't know about anything else, but we had good on camera chemistry. Um, but uh, we're the table read of the first episode, the filming of it, Chris's um, his revelation, you know, their, their revelation at how incredible this kid was. It was, uh, it was astounding. And um, so, you know, we, I'm sure, you know, I didn't think of it until many, many, many years after being here in Los Angeles that there must have been a lot of actors and actresses up for those roles here. I never even thought of that for so many years. Uh, I just thought I was lucky and just going from one thing to the next, which is what I was doing. But now when I look back, uh, television industry, uh, even when I was here, started to change, and other things started to change. Um, now, even more so. Um, but um, reality television really, really screwed up a lot of shit. Well, you know, I always think about that. You know, when I try to tell people, younger people, that you know, when I, when I was growing up, there was three networks, and then Fox came along. So when someone was on, like when you were on. Life goes on, you know, the rating shares were giant because there was nothing else to watch, so people were watching it. And now, you know, we were, I mean, let me remind you, we were up against 60 Minutes for four years. And we were the only show that came in second to them for four years running. They've been on the air for 60 years. <laughs> exactly. And so, so people say, now also for that role, people must have really started recognizing you too. Well, yeah. What was that like? How did that change your life? Did did a lot of people who were parents of mentally handicapped children Thankful. come to you Incredibly and say, thankful. thank God, you know, finally, it's not an actor playing this. Right. It's someone who actually has the the disability playing it. How was how would the people react to you and how, and how did that make you feel? Because it must have just been like tear jerking at times. Oh, 
so many times, so many times. Um, and uh, uh, the best letters uh, fan mail were from the siblings of children with uh, special needs, where they would write and said, I never knew that my brother or my sister were capable of this kind. I mean, they, they, they even saw, I mean, they lived with them, but they saw them in a boom and a whole other light. I mean, the light was shining brightly on them and it was done in a beautiful way. And, um, Chris couldn't have been any better, a, um, um, an advocate, uh, uh, the, 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 the torchbearer, if you will, uh, for that, <clears throat> we were doing many proud moments, uh, with Chris and, uh, been in touch with him recently at Christmas and, and his mom is still alive. God bless 99. And, uh, uh, and sh the moment I've always cherished is when we were reading at our first table read and, um, the, the, the script was about um, Porky being mainstreamed into the high school. And um, someone had accused him of cheating, but it was just the other way around. They, they were cheating off him. And uh, he, got, he got nabbed, principal's office, you know, the whole classic thing, but they called us into the office, uh, the mom and dad. So we're reading the scene and Gloria, uh, Gloria Gifford's playing the principal and uh, we get to the scene and, and it's English class and uh, the, the, the assignment was um, the Raven. So he was accused of not knowing it. And he says, uh, so finally she said, well, do you know it, Chris? I mean, do you know it, Courtney? Do you know it? And he goes, yeah. I know it. And at that point, in the first table read, mind you, he closes the book and recites the regular from here. Unbelievable. <laughs> I mean, it was wow. Uh, it was great. Now, now when that show when that show ended, you know, it was such a fulfilling gig for you. You know, what do you think comes next? Because it was, I mean, it sounds like a life changing role where you've been an actor, and but you've actually, as you said, you're going full back circle, full back circle to when you were teaching and working with the uh, kids with disabilities. What what do you where are you looking at as an actor now when that show ends? What do you what kind of roles do you want to play now? Well, I wanted to do a lot more film. Uh, I guess being out in L.A. kind of spoiled me for that because I had done some films while I was doing it. And, uh, and I got to do that. But I tell you, I was depressed after that show was over. Uh, it was um, it's the best job anybody could have. Um, in those years, in any years, I mean, to be able to 
uh, do something uh, you care about and be a part of. Uh, you got to learn how to direct, and I directed one of the episodes. Uh, uh, very highly rated episode. Nobody wanted to touch it because it was the episode where uh, um, uh, Kelly's character breaks up with Tommy. Uh, uh, Tommy Pewitt, uh, and they were going to break up. And it, there was a lot of a lot of good stuff in it, but nobody wanted to tell Tommy he was off the show. <laughs> <laughs> So, I uh, I had a long talk with him before we even started filming. I called him on the phone and I said, you know, I'm going to tell you something. And, uh, and uh, but I, I told him, I said, you know, I want you to go out with a blaze of fucking glory, kid. You know, I want you to know that you're going to stick it up their ass. <laughs> kind of, you know, kind of way. I, I, it was speaking like Drew then, I guess. But, but I, you know, I was going, you know, these, they should at least, but they didn't anyway. So we had a lot, I got a lot of juice out of that. A lot of creative energy and, uh, and uh, he, he went on to thank me years later and it was kind of, kind of great. Um, but the, after it was over, Uh, I, I went back to Williamstown, uh, did a play and things like that. But, you know, we had family, uh, a lot of that was happening and, uh, you know, I got to do Independence Day and, uh, 13 days, Air Force One. What are they like? Like when you go on the, they're big scale movies, they're, they're, blockbusters it's not like oh yeah i i did a movie it's like i did independence day it's it's fucking huge <laughs> what is that like when you're part of that do you, is it when you walk on the set is there is there a feel like man this is like huge well i know i i <laughs> it was huge uh, steve um because excuse me It was huge because we were filming in the uh, airplane hangar for the Spruce Goose, which was Howard Hughes's largest airplane in the world. And uh, <clears throat> so they, uh, it was huge. I mean, no one had ever done a quarter of a million dollar production before. And uh, there are a lot of stars in it. And uh, sorry to get one of the other more featured roles, but, uh, uh, they offered me this role, uh, to do this captain. And I, you know, what, to speak to your, uh, question when a an actor, uh, uh, gets on set, I'm not looking at how huge everything is. I'm trying to bring it down into what exactly do I have to do to make this guy really interesting, you know? And where do I start that? Where is the process? Where am I doing this? How are we doing this? What am I going to look like? Uh, 
you know, all of those things came into play and, uh, they gave me, uh, they gave me a cigar for this, uh, for this character. Uh, oh, I asked, actually, I asked for a cigar and they came back with this cigar box, uh, uh, because I, I read later that later on they're going to light up cigars in the in the um, in the air. Uh, what do they call it? Um, sorry. Um, it's like explaining the mission to them. You know, I forget the the prep the prep on the war uh, room. The war room. Yeah, I mean not the war room. It was an Independence Day, and I'm addressing the pilots and preparing them for their mission, you know? Uh, so uh, everybody's passing around cigar. I said, well, he should have a cigar in this scene after that's over. So they, they gave me a cigar and I said, man, if there's ever time to do a cigar drop, this is the time, you know? And I did it and they loved it. You know, he turns around and just like the cigar falls out of his mouth you know, it was, uh, you know, people love that moment. And, uh, but the whole thing, I was looking at an X and people were walking by while we were filming. Did not, not know, place is so huge. They didn't even know we were filming, which, which blew my mind. But, uh, and then they gave me, uh, who was it? Um, The writer of <laughs> oh my god, drawing a blank on his name. He comes up to me, and he's got a piece of paper like about this big, and written on it is my speech to the pilots that he was changing, and we had three hours until we're filming it. So that was kind of weird and spooky and uh, hard because part of me couldn't believe there was a Los Angeles Air Force Base. Where is that? Right. And there is one. But there is one. And I, I it was incredible. Um, so it was uh, Dean Devlin was the man's name who wrote, wrote it. And he's got... It's got a lot of other projects now, but he writes this out and um, go, wow, this is a lot better than it's in the script. And uh, so things get better sometimes on a set. You know, you with little grace moments like that, sometimes took me a while to appreciate what that was. And, but they're, they're giving you confidence. They're trying to say, you know, we believe in you, you can do this. You know, you know, uh, we, so it was, but for me, it was like, wow. I mean, it got me nervous, uh, as well. But now when I look back, it's, it was a moment of saying, well, uh, we're going to, we're going to give you a little bit more to say, you know, guys. Well, you know, you, you know, you said when you look back, I want to ask you this, you know, after life goes on, from this, these last 25 years or whatever, give me 
three highlights of your career. When you look back and you go, if, if Independence One was today, we'll skip that. But give me three highlights of something that really has struck in your mind as an actor or just the experience. Well, the experience of making the November Man with Pierce Brosnan uh, and spending, you know, six, eight weeks in uh, Serbia and Croatia and filming that that character, which was kind of, it was a rich character and we had a good time and we both had the same birthday, different years that we started on my on our birthday. We started filming on our birthdays, right? So uh, that was a special film experience, the best one I've had. Um, but when I look back, I mm, or the la- over the last twenty years. Um, getting to meet Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward after they'd saw after they'd seen our play Skin of Our Teeth at Williamstown Theater Festival. Uh, I thought I'd died and gone to heaven right about that. Uh, and then you know to be compared to Frederick March by Joanne Woodward, knowing that they had seen the original production of The Skin of Our Teeth with Frederick March and Tool the Bankhead. And we did it with uh, Marianne Seldes, was our Esmeralda, and uh, Christine Nielsen, uh, Emily Burgle, and uh, directed by a young Czechoslovakian, ex-Czechoslovakian, named Darko Tresniak. And Darko and I met at People's Lighting Theater Company in Malvern, Pennsylvania, doing a Romulus Linney play, Laura Linney's dad, uh, called Suicide at Love Barracks. Suicide at the Love Barracks. And... uh, so that was pretty wild. And uh, <clears throat> so there are moments that, uh, you know, people I've met, people that have come up to me and given me their gifts of uh, thank yous or uh, seeing my children um, get stronger. Uh, sometimes it hasn't been easy. Uh, and um, having a grandchild, it's wonderful. Iris, my granddaughter, she's uh, seven, be eight, in December 26th, 27th, birthday. Um, so there are moments like that. Uh, but it's like, you know, it's like Gary Player says, you know, memories are the pillows of life. You know, we, those are things I draw on, you know, uh, the memories, the, the spirits of, of things past, you know. Uh, there's so much that's so uncertain uh, now. And I, you know, I think back to when I was younger, I mean, 
the future man you could see it was out there you know now what's out there i mean shootings in high schools and grade schools and you know people storming the and the, the thing and the impeachment and i won and oh my god i mean hang in there kids hang in there you know i gotta ask you as what's your message to the kids about hollywood these days because you've been you've seen You've been from a long time, you know, you've seen it go from regular film to digital to, as we said, reality stars. What is your advice to young actors? I talked to a lot of people who've been around a long time that they say how, how important theater is because it really teaches you your craft. But what, what have you seen change in Hollywood and what would your advice be for people who want to crack Hollywood? <laughs> well... Uh, there's no crack in it if you don't have that emotional armor, no matter who you are. Uh, you have to be able, as resilient as you can possibly be, you have to want it to the point where it's almost like food. Uh, and uh, But then there's the other actor or personality who's more concerned about how they look, whatever their look's going to get them, this and that. And that's, you know, hey, that's one way to, uh, there are a lot of people that do absolutely nothing and and um, they're brilliant at it. So um, they're, uh, I don't know. <laughs> uh, if you've got talent, that's one thing. You know, I, I found out that, you know, there were some things that I was just born with. And uh, some people I found uh, really fine actors uh, struggle with things I don't even think about. And there are other people that struggle, that I struggle with things and they don't think about um, at all. Uh, you know, uh, internal struggles. Uh, external struggles, how you, you know, how you handle the gunfire and the wind, whether it's at your back or in your face. Uh, gee, uh, you know, there's nothing like taking chances. <clears throat> you always learn from taking chances. And uh, so I, uh, I would always recommend people go out and take a chance, meet some people. It's the people who want to do the same thing you want to do and start to play with them. Play. That's what they, that's why they call it a play. It's not a, not a competition, although it is a competition. Right. That's the double edge. I play, I play with people. Sometimes I can't stand these people. Still got to play with them because there's rules. There's, you know, there's a way of doing it. You know, I'm the, uh, it's not about, yeah, it's not all about emotion. <laughs> you know, sometimes it's, uh, emotion gets in your way. You know, uh, um, you know, you got to learn to rein all that in and, um, know, know how to use it. 
I call it the inner game of acting. Well, there you go. Listen to listen to Bill. He knows what's going on. I, I want to thank you for coming on, man. You've had such a great career, you know, and it's so funny. Like, I know this weekend I'll probably go back and watch the Miami Vice again, even though I've seen them at all of them, like, 87 times. I just love that show. But I want to thank you for coming on. Um, you are you have such a great career. Uh, are, are you are you still pursuing acting? Are you taking some time off, or, or what, what's going on with you? Well, I'm, uh, right now my wife is getting back into it, and I'm encouraging and supporting her in that i uh i have seen some scripts come by lately so i'm hoping some things comes by that i just just cannot wait to do uh otherwise um you know that old song uh head shoulders knees and toes yeah when you're a little kid it's a whole other meaning when you're over in your 70s head shoulders knees and toes whole different meaning um, so I'm suffering with some ankle issues. I usually play a lot of golf. Love it. And couldn't go to the St. Jude's, uh, golf tournament. That's one time I missed it out in Palm Springs. It's, uh, <clears throat> Patrick Warburton's celebrity classic out there. I raised $3 million in a weekend for St. Jude's. Just a marvelous place. Uh, marvelous event as well. Um, but, uh, Hey, Thanks for having me. Let's go Mets and almost go Phillies. So, so people go, go check out Bill Smitrovich on uh, IMDb. Go watch his old, all his work. Uh, go to my website, coopertalk.net. You can find 900 episodes. Email me, cooper, coopertalk.net. I'm Twitter at coopertalk, Instagram at coopertalk1. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vitamins, take your vegetables, and I'll talk to you next time.